and thus worshiping him. Brothers and sisters, we're called this morning to uh, um, the, uh, a pulpit. Let me invite you to the book of uh, Galatians. If you would please uh, turn there. We're, we're going to begin a new series this morning, which I've titled The Life of, of Christ. And um, in your bulletin, here's an I'm outlining. I would encourage you to locate that and follow along and take notes as you will. And um, in the coming weeks, months, however long, we're going to walk away uh, slowly through the life of Christ. Um, and Galatians 3, or, or I'm sorry, Galatians 4 is the text we're going to begin with. Um, the first couple weeks, I want to introduce you to it. So um, we're not going to get into the, to the nuts and bolts of his life yet. Um, in fact, for quite a few weeks, because there's quite a few verses and passages that predate Christ's birth that are part of the gospel. So we're going to look at those first. But this morning and next week or so beyond, I want to introduce you uh, to this wonderful topic. Galatians 4, um, verses 4 and 5 is the text that, that I want to focus on this morning and next week. But uh, today I'm going to read 1 through, um, or actually we'll read just 4 and 5 um, as that's what we'll be dealing with. Please, if you would, this is God's word. Please stand together with me at the reading of his word. Hear now the word of our king. It said, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Bless this time now, we pray. Visit us, O Lord, indeed. Lead us, direct us, teach us. In spite of the foolishness of preaching, would you be so pleased but to grow and nourish us this day in you. Give me grace to preach your word well, faithfully, accurately, and grant that our faith would not rest upon the wisdom of men, but on the power of you, our God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Ever since I was saved and then sensed a call to preach, it has been my heart's desire to preach on the life of Jesus Christ. But I had the wisdom back then to understand that I had a whole lot more to learn before I, would, uh, I should approach this topic. And I still feel that way. I still wish that I had another 30 or so years on this earth of growth, visit the promised land, you know, four or five, 20 times, uh, whatever. Um, but, you know, I'm 32 years into it. I'm not getting any younger. So we're going to approach this topic in, in earnest. Um, however, as we approach it, as I just said, my desire is to first introduce you to this incredible thing. So I want to talk with you about the world at the time of Christ. And the one thing I want you to walk away with from this study this morning, that the world at the time of Christ was the world God ordained. Okay? The world at the time of Christ was the world that God ordained. Notice with me Galatians 4. It says, but when the fullness of the time came. That's an important phrase. God sent forth his spirit, or sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in the fullness of the time. This is a reference to God's redemptive purpose and will. Look back with me at verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave, though he is owner of, of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. He's talking about a, about a bar mitzvah. 
He's talking about that time where um, uh, in Judaism, and even in the ancient world, not just in Judaism, but I'm focusing on Judaism. In Judaism, when a child was born, the father set the date that that child would become an adult. Unlike our culture, who, you know, adulthood starts, I guess, at 26 now, 28 um, that's the, the new uh, um, adulthood age. In that day, you became an adult overnight. One day you woke up as a child and you went to bed as, a, as an adult, right? You went to bed uh, playing with childish things. You went to, I'm sorry, you woke up playing with childish things. You went to bed having put away childish things. It was the bar, a bar mitzvah. Now, you need to realize that in that day, that didn't take place as mom and dad watched Junior grow up and say, you think he's ready? I think he's ready. You think? I'd like to see him get this down a little bit more. Okay, we'll wait. They didn't do that. When that child was born, dad set a date of adulthood. And get this, this is key. And everything about that child, therefore, worked towards that date. In other words, Parenting in Judaism was not child-sensitive. It wasn't, well, where is Junior in his education? That will determine when he becomes a man. It was, this is when he becomes a man. Everything we do between now and then is going to make him that man. Such that it's the same thing as we do with wedding dates, right? You don't want, you know, a week before say, well, are you ready? Nah, what do you say we just postpone it another week? You can't do that. You get a venue, you pay a lot of money, and six months, eight months of preparation, regardless of where you are, culminates in that date. That's the idea here, right? Verse 2, um, we read, but is under guardians and manners until the date set by the father. Well, when that date took place in that child's life, guess what? That was the fullness of the time. That's what is meant in verse 4. The fullness of the the time, brothers and sisters, um, has overtones of God's glory and majesty. Because God set the date. And everything in world history, in redemptive history, was working towards that moment. In other words, God didn't fit Jesus God didn't mold and shape Jesus to fit the world in which he ministered. God created a world that would be ready to receive Christ. That's the idea behind this phrase. Thus, it has overtones of God's glory and majesty, his decretive will, and thus his overarching purpose. It speaks of God's goodness and grace. Those who walk in darkness will see a great light. It speaks of God's redemption by which he reversed the curse. You should call his name Yeshua, for it is he who will save his people from their sin. None of this is just happening. This is what God has clearly ordained by the language in Galatians 4 before the world began, right? It has overtones of God's satisfaction and pleasure. It pleased the Lord to smite him, says God's word. In fact, if there's any question about it, we read about it in First Peter chapter two, verse or one, verse twenty, where we read that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last day, uh, times for the sake of you. So God knew before the world began, He was going to send His Son, and He decreed and ordained 
everything of that ancient world to prepare this world for Christ. And when he came, he didn't come to sit on a throne. No, he came for the sake of you and me, for the sinner, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I want you to leave here with your faith and your hope centered in God, in God's plan, in God's purpose, as we look at the life of Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, as I'll end, redemption accomplished will be very similar to redemption applied. And I'll, I'll come back to that at the very end. But to show you this, I want to look with you, first of all, at biblical prophecy. I can say all day long, yeah, Galatians 4.4 tells us it was according to the predetermined plan of God, the world was set for Christ. It was the stage on which Christ would appear. Okay, I can say that. We, okay, maybe I, I buy that. I want you to see in Scripture. Go with me, if you would, to some prophecy. Go back with, you, with me first to Daniel chapter 8. Would you notice Daniel chapter 8? Right after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 8. And this is, I'm, I'm going to look at three primary e events that God used closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. We could look at 20 easily. But we're, I'm going to look at just three for the sake of time. Notice with me Daniel 8.8 8, prophesying about Alexander the Great. Notice. Then the male goat, Alexander, magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in his place there came up four conspicuous horns, speaking of his generals, toward the four winds of the heaven. It's prophesying about Alexander. Who's Alexander and why is he being prophesied here? Alexander, brothers and sisters, would be born in 356 B.C. He lived 33 years, same amount as Christ, and died in 323. He was basically the um, ward of the army. Philip II was his father. He was the general, the king of Macedonia, and his boy was raised by the army. So when Philip was assassinated when he was 20 years old, Alexander, Alexander was proclaimed king in general, and for the next 13 years, he would conquer the entire known world. I've got a map uh, for you there. Um, the ancient world never saw a, a kingdom this big. This is massive. It, it overwhelmingly is, 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 is greater than, than a Persia at its greatest. And the kingdom before that, Babylon at, at its greatest. And the kingdom uh, before that, Assyria at its greatest. This is massive. And so Alexander conquered the ancient world. But as a disciple of Aristotle, Alexander was rather Greek-centric. And he believed that Greek had the, had the highest culture, the best language, the best everything. So everywhere he went, look at that map, he imposed the Greek language and the Greek culture. Now this is strange. In the ancient world, the Persians, Syrians, you know, I name it actually, Assyrians, uh, Babylonians, the way you kept peace in conquered lands was you transported. You took all the people in this land, threw them in that land. All the people in that land that you just conquered, they go to this land. All the people in this land you just conquered, go to that land. You transport them because you, with the reasoning, you're not going to die for a land that's not yours. So they typically tr uh, transported. Alexander kept peace by one, educating, teaching the entire world Greek. 
You have to speak Greek and imposing the Greek culture and the Greek mind upon the world. Now, that didn't do away with individual worldviews, but everyone was aware of this one Greek worldview culture. Okay, now, that'll have a, that'll have a bearing when we get uh, to Christ's day. Fast forward the clock 130 years. We're going to go back in, in Daniel. Daniel chapter um, I'm sorry, forward, Daniel chapter 11, three uh, chapters, Daniel chapter 11, verse uh, 31. We're going to go forward 130 years, and another important event took place according to God's ordination. I mean, guys, guy is, God is prophesying this, which tells us God's ordained it. If he ordained Alexander and his four generals, um, I'm sorry, if, if he could prophesy it, he's ordained it. So God set the table, so to speak. Well, notice Daniel chapter 11, 31, referencing the Seleucid general, who I'll explain in one moment, Antiochus IV, we read. And forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. This is speaking of Antiochus having pigs sacrificed on the altar in Jerusalem. That's a, that is a desecration, and it's an abomination. So the abomination of desecration, and by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. He's going to incite people to attack God's people. But the people who know their God, God's people, will display strength and take action. Now this is speaking about the Maccabean rebellion that occurred in 167 B.C. After Alexander died, according to the text in Daniel chapter 8, his kingdom was quickly, as soon as, as soon as he rose up, 13 years, he conquered everything, quickly died. His kingdom was, was then parceled out by four generals, four horns. Um, and very soon, historically speaking, after that, two of those kingdoms fell. The one furthest east, the one furthest west. The only ones that were left were the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, who fought over Palestine. So at times, the Ptolemies ruled over Palestine, which, are, which, which were based in Egypt, and the Seleucids, who were based in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, they fought over, over uh, Palestine. Well, in 170, the Seleucids were ruling over Palestine. And Antiochus IV, sensing the threat of Rome, Rome had just conquered Greece. The Antigone, it's gone, that general gone. <clears throat> they had just conquered Greece. And Antiochus, knowing that we're next, because we're Turkey, we're Asia Minor, he decides that I'm going to unify our nation around one religion. And what was the religion he chose? The worship of Zeus. And you guys know the image of Zeus? He's a pig. So he required every religion, regardless of who their main god was, your, your main god now will be Zeus. We don't care if you worship other gods, but your main god is Zeus, and you will worship Zeus, by sacrificing a pig on this day on your altar. Well, there was a man, an older man, in Modin, the town of Modin. And he watched the Syrian soldier, Seleucid Syrian soldier, um, escort this Jewish victim who had a pig in his hand to go and, and sacrifice the pig on an altar. And this man named Mattathias picked up a sword and killed that Jew. And then he turned, talk about a strong old man, he, he then killed the Syrian soldier. And at that moment, he called upon every man in Israel 
who love God's law to fight. And so the, the, uh, they did. That's what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. Three years later, they had freed Jerusalem, rededicated the temple. That's where Hanukkah uh, comes from. Um, and yet they freed God's people, not as a separate nation as before, but basically they, they freed God's people from the um, oversight of the Seleucids for 130 years. God's people dwelt in relative peace for 130 years until Rome came um, in 37 BC and administratively took over that land. There was no battle. They just took over the land. But for 130 years, God's people got a taste of the freedom that they believed would be part and parcel of the messianic coming of Christ. Okay? So bear that in your mind. The next one we're going to go to, now we go back, Daniel chapter 7. We're going to go forward a couple years and then back, I guess, to Daniel 7, 7. One more prophecy. So God has prophesied about Alexander. He's prophesied about the Maccabees. He's now prophesying about Rome. Daniel 7, 7. Daniel wrote, after this, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast. This is Rome. Dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had... Large iron teeth, that it's again speaking of Rome. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were be, uh, before it. And it had ten horns. Ten horns are a picture of incredible power and incredible strength. Someone that, some, if an animal had one horn, that's pretty good. Two horns, that's even better. Four horns, well, man, you've never seen that. But would you like to be gored by an animal with four horns? How about ten? The idea is this kingdom would be the strongest kingdom to date. And that's exactly what Rome was. Rome made Alexander's kingdom look small. Okay, now, I'm not going to go into detail about Rome other than to, uh, to say this. Rome adopted the education, the philosophy, and in part, the language of the Greeks. All of that was borrowed. So Roman, the high point of Roman thinking was from the Greeks. But what Rome brought to the ancient world was three things. Order, infrastructure, and peace. Okay? So order. Um, once the Romans uh, took over, there was no longer rebellion. If you rebelled, you were squished out. They brought order to the ancient world. They also brought infrastructure. They, they invented concrete. They invented the arch. They built with the arch, I'm about invented. They built with the arch. Unlike the Greeks who had to build great things against hills, they could build in the round. They could build solid structures like the uh, uh, you know, gladiatorial uh, Colosseum, right? They could build that because they knew concrete. They knew arches. They knew bridges. They built bridges. And, and, and they paved roads. Do you know right now, I, I got a picture of a road right now somewhere, I don't know where it is, it's labeled on my picture, of a road still being used uh, today, built by Rome, right? We just repaved our street. I've been in, in my current house 22 years. This is the third time they've repaved the uh, uh, Midway, right? Wow, Rome built a road that lasted 2,000 plus years. So they built this incredible system which allowed free trade, which allowed safety, security, and then they also brought peace, what is known as the peace of Rome, right? The Pax Romana through the Caesars. And because of that, every procurator, governor, was charged with one thing. They had, Rome had a peculiar way of conquering nations. 
When they conquered a nation, which wasn't the nation's fault, they charged that nation for the battle. It's your fault that we conquered you. So they charged them for the battle. Um, so they'd send a procurator, a governor, whose job it was to raise taxes to pay for the battle, which could never be paid off. And secondly, to keep the Roman peace. That's what Pilate was. Now, ironically, unlike Pilate, there was another man named Herod, which we're going to read about as we look at Christ's life. And Herod um, was, um, his, he was the son of a very wise, powerful uh, politician who um, seduced, I don't mean any gross way, but he uh, seduced with his words um, and got into a position where his son Herod would be appointed governor of Syria and then Palestine. So while you had the procurators co-reigning, you still had Herod who was there. And Herod and his children Two generations. So in scripture, we read about Herod. We read of Herod Antipas, second, Herod Archelaus, Herod Agrippa, and then Agrippa. Those are his children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren, all referenced in the Bible, all having a play in God's story in the New Testament. Okay, that's what um, Rome brought. That's what Rome did. Now, Now, guys, from just reading those three prophecies, I hope that you see God ordained the setting. He set the stage for Christ. He made it so that Christ could come and do what he did. That's what we mean by the fullness of the times. So yes, that battle with the Maccabees and that struggle with Alexander and that difficulties with Rome, all of that was God's doing, that he might present a world in which Jesus Christ would then come, serve, and reign. Now, during this time, there was a cultural revolution going on amongst God's people. And that's the second thing I want you to look at with me. And that's religiously. How did God prepare the way for Christ? For that, turn with me, if you would, to 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings uh, 25. And here we're going to read about something that most of you know very well about. 2 Kings 25, 8 through 11. We read, On the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of, of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the, de and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. So this is being about 586 the final exile of the southern kingdom. You know there was a northern and southern kingdom of Israel. They split in 931. And then um, you had a northern kingdom of Israel that, which went into exile in 722 by the Assyrians. And then 605, 597 to 586, we read of the destruction of Judah. Now, the, the significance of this is hard to um, um, estimate because this act of being deported, and again, as I referenced, that's how the ancient world kept peace. They took all of the powerful, wealthy, educated Jews and just simply like balls, uh, um, marbles I'm in your hand, they just threw it out over a geography such that 300, 400, 500 years later, 
By the time of Christ, Jews were living throughout the known world. They had been dispersed. It's known as the diaspora. They were living everywhere. And this dispersion produced, I'm going to look at three things, three important things that readied the world, the Jewish world, for Christ. The first one is, is oral uh, tradition. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 12? Matthew chapter 12. In our study of the life of Christ, eventually we, we will get here, but this is one of many conversations that Jesus would have with his Jewish, um, with Jewish opponents of his day, the Jewish leaders. Matthew 12, 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and, and, and eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, if you look at that last phrase, I, want, I, I challenge you to find an Old Testament verse that says that you can't pick grain on Sunday to feed yourself. You won't find one. There is no Old Testament verse that says that. Well, then why would they say this? Where are they getting this? They're getting this from what is known as the oral tradition or the Mishnah. What is that? Well, in 586, when God's people went into exile, God's people began asking a very important question. Why did God forsake his people? What did we do wrong? <clears throat> Why would God forsake us? And the answer was, God did not forsake you. You forsook God. You forsook him by not upholding his word. And so from 586 on, God's people, the Jews, became people of the book. Everything within them, their entire society, revolved around upholding, obeying the word of God, lest this ever happen again. Well, in order to do that, they came up with this system, which began with Ezra and the great men of the synagogue, 586 and on. And that was, it would actually be further down, but that was that they, that they believed that the word of God, the Old Testament was the skeleton, which was difficult to understand, that God's people missed, that the leaders, the rabbis, the teachers were to flesh out. So from 586, great men of the, of the synagogue, they don't know where it came from specifically or when, but it wasn't Old Testament, intertestamental period, the synagogue took place. And with that came the oral tradition. And the oral tradition was simply this. They memorized the words, the, the explanations, the sermons that great rabbis gave on portions of God's word. And they kept memorizing it and kept memorizing it and kept memorizing it until you get to the time of Jesus Christ. The oral law, the reason why it was oral is because it wasn't written. It'd be written down 200 A.D. In Christ's day, it was simply oral. The oral law now, if you, if once they wrote it down, would be two and a half times the size of my Bible. Okay, so, and that you have to understand is Judaism at the time of Christ. When you think of Christ doing battle against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish teachers and scribes, we think he's battling about the Old Testament. He's not. Every battle, hear this carefully, every battle begun by Jewish leadership in the Bible against Christ is over Jesus not following the Mishnah. Now, Christ did do battle with Scripture, You'll see that. We'll see that. He quoted Psalm 86 in reference to, I said, you are gods. But he's the one who initiated that. But when the Jews had problems with Jesus, it was always about the Mishnah. If you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 7, verse 5. Not in your bulletin notes, but go to Mark 7, 5. 
Mark 7, 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Mishnah. But eat their bread with impure hands. And Jesus there quotes Isaiah in verse 6 and 7 where he says, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. That's the oral law. That's the Mishnah. So during this time, this intertestamental time, this, this oral law, this, this, uh, the Mishnah rose up and became the religion of Judaism in Christ's time. Secondly, during the diaspora, you have the emergence of three religious parties, really four, the Essenes, I'm not going to reference them. Three religious parties. Listen to Mark 3.18, don't have to uh, turn there. We read of one of the disciples being Simon the Zealot, right? The Zealot. And then in Matthew 16.1, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing him, asking him to show them a sign uh, from heaven. Those are the three, they add to the Essenes before, but the three primary religious groups in Judaism. In other words, in the course of 500 years from the, from, the, from the exile into Babylon to Christ, Judaism morphed, or not morphed, uh, Judaism brought upon itself three different flavors, three different expressions of Judaism which existed at the time of Jesus Christ. The first one is Phariseeism. And the Pharisees were, uh, quickly were of the common man. These are all political oppositions. They're all answering one question, okay? The Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes, they're asking, what do you do about Rome? What do we do about the Greeks? What do we do about Persia? How do we live in a world where we are God's people, bound by God's word, but also under the authority of pagan, wretched people? How do we live? And they came up with four answers, three of which I'm going to review with you. The first with the Pharisees. Okay, and the Pharisees were people, it was a position in people in a training who, who came from the lower class. Okay, so in that day, you'd have a middle class, upper and lower. Upper was very small, lower was massive. The Pharisees came from the lower class. They were, they, and, and hence, the Pharisees were the most popular people and position in Judaism at the time of Jesus Christ. Josephus estimated that there were 6,000 Pharisees when Jesus Christ walked the earth. 6,000. Now, amongst the Pharisees, you've got lawyers, you've got scribes. All of those are Pharisees. Okay? Pharisees, scribes, lawyers, all hold to the same thinking. And you know what that uh, thinking was? The Mishnah. So when you think of the Pharisees, they're the ones who propounded and taught the Mishnah. Now, the Pharisees were broken into two camps, Shimei and Hillel. Shimei was an upper-class aristocrat who was a rigorist. Divorce, not allowed. Except for adultery. That's it. Hillel, if your wife burns your food, that's in, in the mission. If she burns your food, divorce her. Okay, so you had two different groups. Hillel, who was of the common. Shimei, upper class. In Christ's day, most people, if not all, followed Hillel. Shimei was, was, was in the seminaries, basically. All right, that's the Pharisees. Next, you have Sadducees. And the Sadducees were all upper class. They're priests. 
Anytime you read of a, of a priest, most likely they're going to be Sadducees. Every Sadducee was a priest, but not all priests were Sadducees. Did you follow that? Every Sadducee was a priest. So the high priest was a Sadducee. The Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court in Judaism, populated mostly by Sadducees. They were upper class. Their answer for Rome was compromise. The, the uh, Pharisees was be godly, study God's word, live it out. Sadducees, compromise. What's the big deal? They didn't believe in uh, uh, the mission. They rejected it. They hated it. They felt any adding to God's word was wrong, which you think, boy, that sounds like a conservative uh, position. Yeah, except they only held the first five books of the Bible, Matthew, right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. They only held to those books, and therefore they did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in, in angels. So they rejected all that. They believed that the way you live in this world is to compromise, and they did. They were very happy to compromise with Rome, and that is why Rome supported them, encouraged them, and helped them. The Sadducees would have been wiped out if it wasn't for Rome. Okay, Rome um, basically funded them, helped them. They didn't uh, fund them, but they did through their compromise. That's the Sadducees. That then leads us then to the Zealots, and their answer to Rome was kill, uh, just kill them. So after the Maccabean revolt, there was that freedom. 130 years later, Rome comes back in and says, hey, it's administrative. You're now Rome. Okay, well, over the course of 30, 40, 50 years, by the time you get to Jesus Christ, life was not livable. It was difficult, very unmanageable living. The uh, Sadducees just compromised. Uh, Pharisees, memorize uh, scripture, study scripture, just get, it, get your, your nose into this book and live in light of it. Don't worry about the, uh, the world. Zealots, we're going to go kill Romans. So at nighttime, they go out, known as the Sicarii because of their sword. They go out and kill lone Roman soldiers who were by th themselves. Uh, uh, tax collectors, they kill them. That's why when we get to Christ's disciples, you have Matthew the tax collector and Simon uh, the zealot. You know what? On any other time other than Jesus Christ, and that day they would have been at each other's throats. The zealot would have been trying to kill Matthew because um, they were compromisers, Roman sympathizers. Okay, Those are the three groups, and those are the three groups whom Jesus Christ will be doing battle with. Then lastly, when it comes to the religious preparing that God did in his people's lives for Christ, we have to go finally with the synagogue. Go, go, uh, go to Luke chapter 4. And we'll wrap this up uh, briefly. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. We read these words. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, so he did this a lot, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. What's the synagogue? Well, when God's people went into exile in 586... According to Amos 7.7, 7, you can't do a sacrifice on foreign soil. You can't do that. So they couldn't worship the way they were used to. So what God's people did from 586 on down is on the Sabbaths and on holy days, on special days where they'd normally be uh, you know, having celebrations uh, revolving around sacrifice, they gathered into groups. And these groups, a synagogue, they gathered with each other. And in gathering with each other, it evolved into this incredible, enduring system that's still a part of Judaism even uh, today. This system where you have to have 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. But in forming that synagogue, that synagogue's, their worship service would be patterned after the, after the temple service. Um, and, but where there was a sacrifice, they put scripture reading. 
So they would follow the exact same uh, service. The temple had three services uh, per day. The synagogue met three times on Sunday. I'm sorry. Three days, uh, 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 three times on Sunday. Three times did the synagogue meet. Every time that the temple was was in a session, so was the synagogue. And th this is where Judaism learned, and the synagogue was the place where you got uh, the Mishnah. But this is where God's word was read every year. Depending on which uh, synagogue you were part of, some synagogues read it, read God's word. Um, back to, uh, you know, from cover uh, to cover, once per year or once every three years, but it, it depending on which uh, single. But the point is, God's people were in his word. But there's a problem with this, inherent, and that's this. Of the thousands upon thousands of synagogues that populated the ancient world in Christ's day and throughout the process of centuries, what's to keep this synagogue from going radical? And what's to keep that uh, synagogue from uh, compromising? I mean, how do we keep Judaism, Judaism, when we're meeting in these small little groups that never all connect. Well, they had a law, and that law was if a visiting rabbi visited us a, a synagogue, guess who preached that morning? The visiting rabbi. And that was that that kept, and, and rabbis visited all over the, the place, right? I'm gonna go visit Uncle Harry. I'm gonna uh, uh, show up for church on Sunday. Guess who's uh, preaching? I am. Right? I'm going to uh, visit uh, uh, Martha. I'm going to go uh, worship uh, with her. Guess who's uh, preaching? I am. So the visiting rabbi preached. And why that's important. Now, let's bring this uh, together now. We look at all of this, the political, religious, and you realize, brothers and sisters, look what God did, the fullness of the times. How God did not morph Christ to fit the world in which he lived. God readied the world for Jesus Christ. Because of Alexander the Great, one language, one culture. Had Christ come 300 years prior to, uh, to that, he could have, but his followers would not have been able to go out and speak in the 20 or 30 different languages that he would have needed to um, to have the word be known. 300 years later, everyone spoke Greek. Everyone did. Everyone had a Greek mind. Everyone had a Greek worldview. Everyone was aware of the Greek gods and the Greek culture and what was valuable and what wasn't. God set the stage for Jesus Christ to come on it. Let me ask you this. You want to go over to the Near East now and try to minister from Jerusalem up to uh, Turkey? You're going to pass through multiple people groups and you'll probably be uh, t uh, you know, murdered multiple times over. Not so at this time. Why? Because of Rome. Rome provided peace and order and roads upon which to travel and bridges and seaport. They created a world which, which would enable Jesus Christ and his message to freely discourse and freely penetrate and freely get out into the world. Likewise, you think of um, the platform that God's people had, Jesus had, his first year, his year of popularity, We'll, we'll talk about that year. That year of popularity, Jesus Christ preached frequently in synagogues. Luke 4, he reads Isaiah and says, I tell you, and you're hearing this verse has, has been uh, fulfilled by me. I mean, amazing that we had a, a culture where right now, I dare you, just go and say, I'm a Jew, let me preach. That's not going to happen. I go to Jewish uh, uh, seminary, uh, let me preach. Not going to happen, but at this time, if you were the visitor, you were the preacher. You were the minister. Amazing. Then on top of that, you think of um, the Maccabean uh, uh, revolt, which, which gave God's people a taste of freedom and a longing. Look, 
if Mattathias and his five sons could deliver us from the Assyrians, what will the Messiah do? And so there was this 130-year building up of this longing for the Messiah who would come and deliver us. What kind of a, of a, a Messiah? A Maccabee, who would deliver us from Rome. So when Jesus Christ came, it was very easily in our minds, John 5, to think that because of a miracle or because of some, some great thing that the crowds listening would take Jesus by force and make him king to march on Rome. Why? Because of the Maccabean revolt. Guys, everything that we're going to see in the, in, the, in the coming months and years as we look at the life of Jesus Christ, everything that we're going to see was established, created, and placed there so that the word of God, Jesus Christ's ministry, could go forth. Okay? Um, again, second, uh, or First Peter 2, Christ was foreknown, everything about him, foreknown from the foundation of the world. Now, brothers and sisters, if that is true with regards to the coming of Jesus Christ, redemption accomplished, and I'll give you one more passage before I close this. Two more, actually. First Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to read. Paul's talking to people who have lost loved ones. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Loved ones died. They called them sleeping, right? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, to, uh, caught up together with them in the clouds. And the key phrase is now, to meet the Lord in the air. You know what that word is in the Greek? Incredible word. It's a word used to refer to a city. Hearing that Herod is coming to our city, the dignitaries getting the city all in shape, set up a big meal planned, they then would go out, meet Herod, and escort him back. That's the word here. Do you realize the second coming of Jesus Christ? We're going to go up and we're going to meet the Lord. Those alive, those who have died, we're all going to meet uh, the Lord. And we're going to come back. And that implies, brothers and sisters, preparation. In other words, if the first coming of Jesus Christ was all according to God's preparation, if the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be according to preparation, we're going to go up and meet him, having the world prepared for the second coming. Christ will come at the point, according to God's plan, as Christ said, the hour and time God has set. You can be, I'll be sure, if Christ's first coming and the second coming are determined, set, established by God, the fullness of the times. What must you conclude about your life this day where you are? What must you and I uh, conclude? Listen to, lastly, Ephesians 1, 4, being through 6. Paul wrote in love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, 
God set the stage for the life of Christ. And we're going to read about that. And we're going to read so often to see how God ordained the situations to bring out the glory and the praise, the magnanimously of Jesus Christ. How great he is. How magnificent he, um, um, he is. How glorious. How good. How kind. All that we will read because of God's foreordination. The second coming, the end of this world, is according to the plan of God. And guess what? Not surprisingly, where you are this day and what's going on in your life this moment, the struggles, the struggles you don't even know about that this coming year hold, you got to understand, are ordained by a good God whose plan is not just to accomplish the salvation in Jesus Christ, but to apply that salvation in your lives as we grow in sanctification, as we grow in maturation. So as we study the life of Christ, we're studying the, the work of Christ, the work of God, not only then, but in our own world and in our own lives and how the Messiah walks with us still here in present. I'll be with you always. And thus, brothers and sisters, as we look at this incredible story, we're looking at our story and the story that God is working out in each and every one of your lives here as he brings many sons uh, to glory to the glory and honor of his grace. So brothers and sisters, as we anticipate this day, let me encourage you to start reading Matthew. Get into Mark, Luke, John. Start reading those, studying them. Next week, I'll give you my study outline that I'll give you for the coming uh, study. But boy, be in it, be in prayer, and may God use this to grow us in our apprehension of the nearness of God, which is our good, and the working of our good God in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we're grateful for how it so details the life of Jesus Christ. And as John says, so many more books could be written, but you've given us four. And Lord, even that's not enough to behold the glory and the greatness of you, our God. We look forward, Jesus, to spending eternity walking with you face to face, gazing upon your glory and growing. But, Father, what you've given us is sufficient and enough, certainly. And therefore, O oh Lord, we are grateful for what you've given us in these Gospels. Give us the grace, O oh Lord, each week as we, as we open your word and as we study about you, our Lord, and what you, what, what you did to prepare this world for you, O oh God. And then, Jesus, what you did in coming and how you lived and why you lived and, and how you died and why you died and how you rose and how you saved and why you rose and saved. God, give us the grace to be a people who would mature and grow in our encouragement, comfort, confidence in you, that we might be a people who would offer worship to you, our God, acceptable in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go and see.